If you're not there already, you can turn in your Bibles to Leviticus. If you're visiting with us, we're working our way through the book of Leviticus. And we are on the tail end of our study in chapter 25. Leviticus 25, the verses we're going to cover this morning are verse 23 all the way down to verse 55, large section of scripture. I'm going to read verses 23, 24, we'll pray, we'll work our way through the passage and then we'll seek to glean some of the important lessons from this passage. Leviticus Chapter 25, if you're using the church Bible, it's on page 174, 25, verse 23. The land, moreover, shall not be sold permanently, for the land is mine. For you are but sojourners in foreign residence with me. Thus, for every piece of land of your possession, you shall provide for the redemption of of the land. Let's pray. Lord God, we ask for your help as we seek to understand this ancient law and its significance and importance for us as New Testament believers. Lord, we need your help. This passage that seems so far removed from our context, from our own laws and our own land, Lord, give us understanding as your word is a revelation of yourself. In Jesus' name, amen. It was in the year 1752 that a huge bell, 2,080-pound bell, was shipped from England to the colony of Pennsylvania. The cost of that bell at the time was $300. It was transported to the city of Philadelphia. And upon the very first ringing of this bell, it cracked. It was recast in the year 1753, just a year later, and was most famously used... On July, not 4th, but July 8th, in the year 1776, to ring the announcement of the Declaration of Independence. Perhaps you've heard of this bell. It's often called the Liberty Bell. What you might not know about the Liberty Bell, unless you actually visited it, is that There's a citation from the book of Leviticus, chapter 25, verse 23. I'm sorry, chapter 25, verse 10 is the citation. It says, proclaim liberty from the King James Version. Proclaim liberty throughout all the land unto all the inhabitants thereof. And it's a direct reference, as we have been observing, chapter 25, to the year of Jubilee. Because it was the Jubilee holiday that happened every 50 years on Israel's calendar 
that marked out a declaration of freedom, a remission of debt, a freeing of any slaves who had been indebted. And so it was the year of Jubilee that marked freedom, freedom for all, and a return to the land that was given to your forefathers or to your family that you had inherited. We find ourselves in Leviticus chapter 25, what at first glance seems to be a kind of strange, very irrelevant law related to the Israelite calendar. Chapter 23, we notice, was covering all the different annual feasts of Israel. Chapter 24 had to do with some of the daily regulations uh, in, the, in the tabernacle. Chapter 25 here covers this 50-year celebration of Jubilee. Remember, there was, we saw last time there would be seven sabbatical years. Every seven years, the Israelites had to not work the land, to not plant seed into the ground, but to let the land rest. And then after seven sabbatical years, there would be an extra sabbatical year, this year of Jubilee on the Israelite calendar. And so, let's dive into this ancient year that happened every 50 years. And and what we're going to see in this uh, section is God himself being the redeemer of those in desperate times. And there's a kind of progression of poverty throughout this section. A progression that goes from somebody being in a desperate situation where they have to sell, they have to sell, or we might probably better call it lease out part of their land, to the point where they have to lease out or sell all of their land, to the point where they have no land to sell or lease out, that they have to actually sell themselves into slavery. Let's pick it up in verse 23 and 24, which I already read, which is a kind of introduction to this section. The land, moreover, shall not be sold permanently, for the land is mine, for you are but sojourners and foreign residents with me. Thus, for every piece of land of your possession, you shall provide for the redemption of the land. So at the outset here, again, we need to remember the context, where we're at in Scripture, The Hebrews had been delivered out of Egypt. They were enslaved in Egypt. God, many years prior, had promised Abraham a land, a nation, a people. And in this this land that we know as Canaan, the Israelites were not yet in it. And God is telling them, when you get in the land, he's giving them certain laws to regulate their time in that land. And he's making it clear that they understand the land is not ultimately theirs. That God owns it and he's letting them use it. As a gift of grace, he's giving it to them. Which would have informed their perspective on the land. And also, if we were to fast forward the book of Numbers and then later on in the, the book of Joshua, you'll see each of the tribes were allotted different sections of land. And then in the midst of those tribes, which were uh, based off of the descendants of Jacob, you've heard of the 12 tribes of Israel. It would go down to different clans and then down to families. And so each Israelite was, was allotted a specific section of that promised land. 
Verse 25, here's the situation. In verse 25, all the way down to verse 34, it's going to speak of situations where Israelites were in desperate situations where they had to sell part of their land. Verse 25, it says, If a brother of yours becomes so poor that he has to sell part of his possession of the land, then his nearest kinsman redeemer is to come and redeem what his brother has sold. So here would be a situation where an Israelite was in a desperate situation. Maybe there was a storm that destroyed all of his crop and he doesn't have enough money to buy seed for the next year. And so he has to sell off part of his land in order to have seed to be able to harvest on the other part of his land that he still has in possession. Or maybe he's just uh, like the man so often described in the book of Proverbs is a sluggard. And he keeps hitting the snooze button during the time of sowing of, uh, of the crops and he sleeps all through the springtime and Crops don't get in time, and the sluggard goes hungry. But the sluggard has family, and he needs to feed his family. And so, again, he's in a desperate situation. He has to sell part of his land. So, so here was, uh, was the order that family was to help take care of family. And, and if there was a kinsman redeemer, a relative who had adequate resources, he could buy back that land. He could could purchase that land to to set that person free from the the selling of that land so that the land would be back in the family. And of course, we see that in what tiny book of the Bible? In the book of Ruth, right? Where, uh, uh, you know, Naomi's husband... Uh, during a time of famine, makes a choice to leave the land. Evidently, he sold his property, and it was in possession of somebody else. But then remember, when Ruth and Naomi come back to the land, they find out that they have a near redeemer, a relative who's wealthy and who can possibly redeem the land. And also, you know, part of the story is also providing a seed, a child for um, for Ruth's widowed husband. Verse 26. Or in the case of man who has no kinsman redeemer, but recovers his means and finds sufficient payment for its redemption, then he shall calculate the years since its sale and return the balance to the man to whom he sold it. And so return to his possession of the land. So here's a scenario where the man leases out part of his land, let's say, let's say there's 10 years till Jubilee. And he says, okay, you'll, you could have this land for 10 years. I'm going to sell it at $1,000 to you or lease it at $1,000. But the part of his land that he still has, he's able to have an abundance of crop to feed his family, but also to sell some to be able to have, let's say, $500 after five years. And so he calculates, well, I gave this to you for, 
you know, I, I sold it for a thousand over ten years. We're five years into this. I'm going to buy it back for five hundred, and so now his property becomes his. So he could redeem himself out of that situation. Continues on in verse 28. But if he has not found sufficient means to return it to himself, then whatever he has sold shall remain in the hands of its purchaser until the year of Jubilee. But at the Jubilee, it shall revert that he may return to his possession of the land. So, what we see here, if he was never able to save up enough money to purchase back the land, at the year of Jubilee, which again was every 50 years on Israel's calendar, there was to be a kind of a reset button where the land would go back to the families that, that it had originally been allotted to, so that families that had been maybe transplanted because of the sale of part of the land, they, they now got all their land back. And now Moses will regulate certain special cases. The first is when it's a city dwelling. Verse 29, likewise, if a man sells a house for habitation in a walled city, then his redemption right remains valid until a full year from its sale. His right of redemption lasts a full year. So here's a specific situation. This is not a rural area with lots of farmland. This is a city dwelling behind walls. So the assumption here is it's not, it's, it's not a kind of property that is a major source of income. In this particular situation, he has a year's amount of time where he can buy back that property that was within the city But if that year goes by, in verse 30, but if it is not redeemed for him within the space of the full year, then the house in that walled city passes permanently to its purchaser throughout his generations. It does not revert in the jubilee. The houses of the villages, however, which have no surrounding wall, shall be considered as open fields. They have uh, have redemption rights and, and do indeed revert in the Jubilee. So there's a distinction here for city dwellings uh, versus the more rural dwellings. And again, it seems to be the idea that uh, the, the, the rural dwellings, these were the areas where this was a source of income. And to keep somebody out of desperate poverty, it would revert in the year of Jubilee, but not for the city dwelling. Verse 32, as for the Levites, remember the Levites, they were a special case. The Levites were not given a cluster of land in Israel, but they were given some 48 different villages that were sprinkled all throughout Israel. And this, by the way, as an aside, seemed to have been strategic for God to have Levites who were equipped with the knowledge of the law to be sprinkled all throughout Israel so that they would have, uh, be able to instruct God's people. We see that later on in the book of Ezra. Ezra 7.10, he set his heart to study the law of God, to apply it, and to teach it to others. Ezra was a Levite. 
And so the Levites are a special situation because they weren't given a cluster of land. And, and also, by the way, some of those, those uh, cities of the Levites were also cities of refuge as well. If there was a manslaughter that was committed, a, a person who accidentally killed another could go there for refuge. So this is a special situation with the Levites. As for the Levites, the Levites have a permanent right of redemption for the houses of the cities which, which are their possessions. So those city-dwelling laws that applied for general Israelites don't apply for the Levites. They have not just a year, but they have the full 50 years to get back their city-dwelling. Verse 33, what therefore belongs to the Levites may be redeemed. And a house sale in the city of their possession reverts in the Jubilee. For the houses of the cities of the Levites are their possession among the, the sons of Israel, but the pasture fields of their city shall not even be sold, for that is their perpetual possession. So the Levites weren't even allowed to sell their kind of rural land, and also their city dwelling land had to, uh, uh, could be redeemed, not just for that year-long period, but for the entire 50-year period. And again, this appears to be so that the Levites didn't become displaced. Because again, the strategy of the Levites being sprinkled all throughout Israel was so that there would be, the word of God could be amongst God's people. And then in verse 35 to 38, now it's going to be a more desperate situation of poverty. This is now applying redemption and jubilee to Israelites who become poor. Now they have to sell not part of their land, but all of their land. Verse 35, now if a brother of yours becomes poor and his means with regard to falter, then you are to sustain him like a sojourner or a foreign resident that he may live with you. You see, what was the characteristic of sojourners or foreigners? They weren't part of God's covenant people and had not been given a plot of land in the promised land. They did not own real estate. They did not own big farmlands. And so this would be an Israelite who had sold all of his real estate. He had sold all of his land. He had leased it out for that whatever next, however many years till the Jubilee. And God's saying, you are to treat him like a sojourner, like a foreigner. You're to be kind to him that he may live with you. You don't kick him out of the land. Verse 36, do not take usurgy. That's a hard word to pronounce. Usurious interest from him, but fear your God that your brother may live with you. What is he saying here? In other words, don't take advantage of your brother who's in a desperate situation, giving him high interest loans that he's never going to be able to pay back. But instead, you're to fear your God. Know that God watches over you and your business transactions. You may think that this deal will line your pockets with a little bit extra, but God sees it. He sees you taking advantage of your brother. Verse 37, you shall not give him your silver 
at interest nor your food for gain. I am Yahweh, your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt to give you the land of Canaan to be your God. So again, God is saying, no loans at interest, not for your fellow brothers, your fellow covenant people. And then God reminds them, as he did earlier on in this section, in in verse 23 and 24, I am Yahweh your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. Remember, I'm your God. I have been gracious to you. You didn't earn this land. I gave it to you. I plucked you out of slavery and graciously and kindly planted you in the land. So remember that when you're tempted to not be generous and kind towards your fellow brother. And then verse 39 through 55, now this is a situation where an Israelite has not only sold part of his land, all of his land, and now the only thing he has left to sell is himself. So in verse 39... It says, if a brother of yours becomes so poor with regard to you that he sells himself to you, you shall not subject him to a slave service. He shall be with you as a hired hand, as if he were a foreign resident. He shall serve with you until the year of jubilee. What is God saying through Moses? He's saying if somebody gets in such a desperate situation that the only thing they have left to sell is themselves, this is how you're to treat them. Not as a slave, but as a kind of um, indentured servant, as a kind of hired hand, as if they were a foreign resident. Roy Gain in his commentary on Leviticus, he says, quote, many poor white people voluntarily immigrated to America in colonial times under a system called indentured servitude because they could not afford the fare for crossing the Atlantic. Wealthy landowners in America would pay their way. Then the new immigrants were obligated to work for a period of time to pay off their debt. Today, we find many similar dynamics when an employer sponsors a person's education in exchange for a commitment to work for that employer until the debt is fully amateurized. So we have somewhat similar things in our culture today, Uh, whether it's an employer, again, paying for somebody's education under the assumption that they're going to work for a certain amount of time, sometimes a Employers will sponsor people uh, to come to America. And again, the assumption is they're going to work for them for X amount of time. We also have things like the United States military in which you will sign up for a certain amount of years. There's financial benefits to that. You get pay, you get room and board, but you also become the property of the United States of America. And you go where they send, you jump however high they say, 
You were obligated to them. And so ancient Israel had a similar system like this. In fact, it's interesting. In 1690, John Locke in his second treatise of government said that the difference between servitude and biblical law codes and the kind of slavery practiced in his day He says, I confess we find among the Jews as well as other nations that men did sell themselves. But it is plain that it was only to drudgery and not slavery. For it is evident that the person sold was not under an absolute arbitrary despotic power. For the master could not have power to kill at any time whom at certain time he was obliged to let go and let free out of his service. And the master of such a servant was so far from having an arbitrary power over his life that he could not at pleasure so much as maim him, but at the loss of an eye or a tooth he would have to set him free, according to Exodus chapter 21. And so this was, again, Israel's method of dealing with people who were in desperate poverty, that one could sell himself for labor, For a certain amount of time, verse 41, he shall go out from you, he and his sons with him, and he shall return to his family, this would be at the year of Jubilee, that he may return to the possession of the land of his fathers, for they are my slaves whom I brought out of the land of Egypt. They shall not be sold at a slave sale. You shall not have dominion over him with brutality, but you shall fear your God. And so again, every 50 years, the ram's horn would blow on the day of atonement. And this was a declaration, all debts are forgiven. Time to go back. You, had, you could have been even in a situation where you were enslaved, but now you had been set free in all the property that was your family's property, maybe your father and grandfather's property. Now you went back to, and it was a new start, a new life. Verse 44, as for your male and female slaves whom you have, You may acquire male and female slaves from the nations that are around you. And also you may acquire from the sons of the foreign residents who sojourn among you, from them and their families who are with you. As for those whom whom they have begotten in, in, in your land, they also may become your possession. You may even give them as an inheritance to your sons after you to receive as a possession. You can use them as permanent slaves. But in respect to your brothers, the sons of Israel, you shall not have dominion over one another with brutality. In other words, he's making a distinction here between those who become slaves as, say, like prisoners of war uh, from other countries versus fellow Hebrews. There was a difference. Fellow Hebrews were not to be enslaved in the same way in which a foreigner could be. Now, we'll talk more about that in the future when we get to chapter 27. Verse 47. Now, if the means of a sojourner or foreign resident with you become sufficient, and a brother of yours becomes so poor with regard to him as to sell himself as a sojourner who resides with you, 
or to the descendants of a sojourner's family, then he shall have redemption right after he has been sold. One of his brothers may redeem him, or his uncle, or his uncle's son may redeem him, or one of his blood relatives from his family may redeem him, or if he, so, if he prospers, he may redeem himself. The point here is even foreigners had to abide by the same laws of Israel that if somebody was able to come up with the money, a near relative, or even themselves, they could be redeemed. But if that didn't happen, every 50 years, God himself would redeem. God would set free at the Jubilee. Verse 50. He then with his purchaser shall calculate from the year when he sold himself to give up to the year of Jubilee and the price of his sale shall correspond to the number of years and it is like the days of a hired man that he shall be with him and if there are still many years he shall return part of his purchase price in proportion to them for his own redemption. And if few years remain until the year of Jubilee, he shall calculate with him in proportion to the years he shall return the amount for his redemption. Like a hired man, year by year he shall be with him. He shall not have dominion over him with brutality in your sight. So, this is basically just what we've been saying, that, that the selling and the, the buying, one selling, one into slavery, and then the redemption of that person is based off of how many years till the Jubilee. If it was only a year left until Jubilee, and he was able to maybe come up with the money himself, or a rich uncle came alongside and paid, then it would be smaller than if there was 30 years till the Jubilee. And also, if he was selling himself and there was 45 years until the next Jubilee, that would be a hefty sum that he would receive because that's 45 years of labor. Verse 54, even if he is not redeemed by these means, he shall go out in the year of Jubilee. He and his sons with him For the sons of Israel are my slaves. They are my slaves whom I brought out of the land of Egypt. I am Yahweh your God. So God makes it clear. I am the ultimate redeemer. If one is in such a desperate situation that he has to sell himself when it comes to that 50th year, that year year of Jubilee, I am the Redeemer. I set him free. Because remember, I am the one who redeemed you out of Egypt and brought you into this land. You are my slaves. Therefore, no Israelite is to be a permanent slave. We say, this is interesting, Matt. This ancient law, but what on earth does this have to do with us as believers who do not live in this ancient theocracy with these certain land laws? 
Well, certainly there's principles of application and how we would treat those in poverty and especially our brothers and sisters who are in need to certainly never take advantage of them, to live in the fear of the Lord. But I want us to take away from this three three gospel lessons from Jubilee. Three gospel truths. The first is the redemption of Yahweh. The redemption of Yahweh. One commentator by the name of Rooker says this, because the Goel, that's the kinsman redeemer, was a close family member who had an obligation to deliver a family member in need, the term was rightly applied to God in the outworking of covenant relationship with Israel. God, in Exodus 4.22, is described as the father, Israel's father. In Isaiah 63.16, God is not only Israel's father, but also Israel's Goel, her kinsman redeemer. In Isaiah 54.5-8, God is Israel's husband and Goel. Thus, it is not at all stretched to consider God as the nearest of kin for all impoverished Israelites when the trumpet sounded at the time of Jubilee. And then he quotes another theologian and says, The God who once redeemed his people from Egypt and acquired his people as his possession here appears again as redeemer to restore the bondmen his personal freedom to re-endow the poor with his share allotted to him in the inheritance of his people. And so what you have in each of these situations, whether it was the person who sold part of his land, the person who sold all of his land, or the person who sold all of his land and all of himself, that every 50 years God himself became the Redeemer. God himself, at the blowing of the ram's horn, on the day of atonement, on that 50th year, God was saying, I deliver you. I redeem you. I pay the price to set you free. And that, by the way, is what redemption is. To redeem means to pay the price with a view to set free. And so now, hopefully you're beginning to see the new covenant application. Because the Bible is clear that we are born slaves. Maybe since the civil war in this country and the Emancipation Proclamation, it is illegal to own another as a slave. But don't be so naive to think that there is not slavery today. Because the Bible says that we are first enslaved to Satan. Ephesians chapter 2 says, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to who? The prince of the power of the air. That we are born into this world as Enslaved to one who goes unseen, biting down on the lies that he spins out. 
deceived and deceiving one another. Henry Law says, Satan enchains the heart and drags his vassals to vile service. There's no will, no power to resist. By nature, all lie prostrate at Satan's feet. I mean, did you ever wonder how it is that people could believe such absurdities in our world today? It's because there's a mastermind spinning out his lies that people are enslaved to. But law goes on to say, but Jesus wrestles with this cruel foe and he hurls him from his throne and he breaks his scepter and gives him a death wound. Gospel jubilee sets free from Satan's power. But not only enslaved to Satan, enslaved to sin. Again, Ephesians 2. And you were dead in trespasses and sins. Read Romans chapter 6, where it says that part of what God does in a person's heart is sets them free from slavery to sin. In fact, John Bunyan, the famous author of Pilgrim's Progress, he wrote another allegory that's not nearly as famous. It's called Man's Soul. And Man's Soul has been taken over by an evil despot. And it's all about liberation from the evil despot. That what Bunyan is keying in on here is that in salvation, Christ dethrones sin and Satan. In fact, Jesus himself in John chapter 8, remember he's talking to the religious leaders? And he says to them, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is a slave of sin. And a slave does not remain in the house forever. The son does remain forever. So if the son makes you free, you will be free indeed. That's redemption. Where Jesus pays the price and he unlocks the shackles of sin. Does that mean that the person will never sin again? No. But while sin remains, sin no longer reigns. Again, Henry Law says, then also sin rules the captive race of man. It subjugates each soul and it must reign until expelled by Christ. All moral principle, all sense of shame, all longings to be pure are weak as feathers to withstand sin's flood. But when Christ shows his dying love and his blood streaming to atone, then a new passion gains the throne. The yoke is burst. Gospel jubilee sets free from sin. And then, of course, the world. This world is a file tyrant. Again, Ephesians 2. And you were dead in trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked according to what? According to the course of this world. This world in all of its systemic lies and unbelief that it propagates. 
this world system that is passing away. Humanity is enslaved to. And so, again, law says, the world, its smile allures, its frown deters, its fashions force compliance, its laws exact submission, it drives its millions to a slavish toil. But when Jesus unmasks the monster's hideous filth, when he reveals the beauties of the gospel, then the chain snaps The enemy is loathed and its debasing ways are shunned. Gospel jubilee sets free from the world's snares. And then one more master, the master of death, which all humanity is subject to. that reality that hunts all of us down, that reality that came into this world when man chose to rebel and God promised in the day that you eat of that tree, you will surely die. And all humanity looks at the horizon of death Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14 and 15 says, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself partook of the same, that through death he might destroy him who had the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to slavery. So that this last tyrannical master Christ sets his children free of death and he does this through redemption you see the the last line of of poverty in ancient Israel was enslavement of oneself and isn't it a fascinating thing that when Christ comes to this earth the great redeemer it says things like in Philippians chapter 2 who although being in the very form of God did not regard equality with God something to be grasped he took the form of a slave of a servant. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient, obedient unto death, even death on a cross. Or how about this one? Mark chapter 10 and verse 45. For the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. You see, friends, wonder of wonders We are the slaves. But Jesus himself takes the posture of a slave and subjugates himself to purchase us out of our slavery. Our slavery to sin, our slavery to Satan, our slavery to the world, our slavery to death. And how does he do it? The Apostle Paul says, 
In Galatians 3.13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. Friend, if you sit here redeemed, free, have you thanked Jesus lately? your champion who flicked that evil foe, Satan, who subjugated sin in your heart, who unshackled you from the snares of this world, who loosed you free from death. And he did this by making himself a slave, dying on that Roman cross, Oh, my dear child of God, thank him. Thank him this morning. And live for him. For as the Apostle Paul says, you have been bought with a price, therefore glorify God in your body. He owns you. You are obligated to him. He is now your new master. You've been redeemed. But some of you sit in this room and you, you have these unseen shackles that you're wearing around your ankles. Shackles of sin, shackles of this world, shackles of Satan, and they clank over and over and you try to set yourself free from them. You try to improve your life. You try to clean up your life, but the shackles just still clang. You can't set yourself free. That's because you've been trying to pay your own debt. You've been trying to free yourself. But I want to tell you this morning, the ram horn blows. It's jubilee. And Christ will set you free. But you need to go to him humbly, humbly abase yourself. Tell him, I've tried to change. I can't change. I can't do it. These chains around my heart keep sucking me back into sin. Oh God, I beg you, through the blood of Christ, set me free. Forgive me of my debt of sin. Unshackle my heart. And he is a kind Savior. He will kindly set you free. I can't do it for you. Your friends can't do it for you. Only the Lord Jesus, the great Redeemer, the great kinsman Redeemer, can set you free. It's His blood that was shed that sets you free. Oh, and you'll sing as we sung earlier with Wesley. Long my imprisoned spirit lay, fast bound in sin in nature's night. Thine eye diffused a quickening ray. I rose, the dungeon flamed with light. My chains fell off, my heart was free. I rose, went forth, and followed thee. Friend, if you don't know that quickening ray, Beg God to shine forth the light. And if you do know it, thank him and live for him and follow him.
But not only do we have the redemption of Yahweh, we have the remission of Yahweh. Isn't it interesting? You know, normally the year would begin on the Feast of Trumpets at the beginning of the seventh month. We studied that in Leviticus chapter 23. But here, Jubilee begins on the tenth day of the seventh month. And of course, you all know exactly what day that was on the Hebrew calendar. It was that one day out of the year when the high priest would go into the Holy of Holies and sacrifice the one goat and the other goat was set free. It was the day of atonement. It's no coincidence that on the day when Israel had the promise of forgiveness of sins through blood atonement, that God says, the debt has been paid for. You're set free. And for ancient Israelites, this was a financial debt. But by the time we come to the New Testament, we see over and over that often sin is described as a debt. Doesn't Jesus teach his disciples to pray in that prayer in Matthew chapter 6? Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. And then what's the next line? Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. When Jesus gives that parable to explain how a forgiven person is a forgiving person What kind of imagery and language does he couch it in? A man who has a debt before a master of 10,000 talents. This past week we read that with our family. And I surmise that a talent was a year's wages. And so somebody who worked for a year, let's assume in our today's currency was $50,000 a year. For 10,000 years. We're talking $3.5 billion debt. And he comes and begs and pleads for mercy. And the master absolves the debt. Do you remember he's then on his way home? And he sees a guy who owes him a hundred denarii, which was a denarii was a day's wages. So by the same calculations, it's something around $12,000. He's just been forgiven $3.5 billion. Now this guy owes him $12,000, and he's putting his greasy hands around the guy's neck, choking him. And then the big master gets wind of it, and he ain't happy. What's the point? Forgiven people are forgiving people. And if you're not a forgiven, forgiving person, it's probably because you don't realize the forgiveness that you need. What's the point? Remission. Remission. That the Jubilee was a picture of remission. Remission of financial debt But by the time we get to the New Testament, we see that the picture is fulfilled 
in spiritual debt. You say, Matt, you're really reaching the scriptures today. Am I? Well, you'll just have to turn to Luke chapter 4. Because Jesus, which I think he knew something about the Bible, he applies jubilee to the announcement of forgiveness and gospel news in quoting Isaiah 61. Luke chapter 4, verse 18, Jesus goes into the synagogue on the Sabbath, as was his custom, as was the tradition in the synagogue since the days of the, the uh, Maccabees, where on the Sabbath they would gather for Torah reading, for Scripture reading. And Jesus says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind. And here's this phrase, to set free. The Greek word there is a word that's almost every time in the New Testament translated forgiveness to those who are oppressed and to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. And again, this is quoting from Isaiah chapter 61. Let me just turn there quickly. Isaiah 61. Page 1001 in your church Bible. It says, the spirit of Yahweh is upon me. Because Yahweh has anointed me to bring good news to the afflicted. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim release to the captives, and freedom to prisoners. So that word release, release to the captives, is, is, is a direct allusion back to Leviticus chapter 25 and Jubilee. And again, verse 2, to proclaim the favorable year of Yahweh. What year? The year that happens every 50 years. The year of Jubilee. And then notice this, and it's fascinating because Jesus doesn't mention this. He doesn't, he doesn't, he stops right there. But Isaiah continues on, and the day of vengeance of our God to comfort all who mourn, to grant those who mourn in Zion, giving them a headdress instead of ashes, oil of rejoicing instead of mourning, the mantle of praise instead of the spirit of fainting, so that they may be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of Yahweh, that he may show forth his beautiful glory. Then he will rebuild the ancient waste places. They will, ri- they will raise up the former desolations, and they will make new the ruined cities. Uh, what I want you to see briefly here, and we're going to get to it in a minute, is that there's a sense in which Jubilee is fulfilled in the first coming of Christ, but there's also a sense in which it looks off into the horizon to a future Jubilee. First, the good news of forgiveness of sins, remission. Not only redemption, but remission, the forgiveness of sins. And this is what I want us to think about. Remission, the forgiveness of sins. 
Friend, do you cherish the reality that your sins are forgiven through the redemption that is in Christ? Again, have you thanked him lately? Do you believe your sins are forgiven? The Roman Catholics during the Protestant Reformation, they said the great, uh, one, one uh, Cardinal Bellamy, I think is how you pronounce his name, said the greatest Protestant heresy is that you can know that your sins are forgiven. Why is that? Well, because the whole Roman Catholic system is based off the tyranny of fear. You need to do these sacraments, perform this, do this, say so many Hail Marys in hopes that maybe, possibly, perhaps you might experience the forgiveness of God after several thousand years of purgatory, of course. But then came the Protestant reformers. And they said, no, you can be justified by faith alone. You can be forgiven of all your sins. And this is the promise of God. But it goes all the way back even to the Apostles' Creed. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church. Don't have an allergic reaction. just means universal church. The communion of the saints. The forgiveness of sins. I believe in the forgiveness of sins. This Again, my friends, if you don't know that your sins can be forgiven this morning, the ram's horn is blowing. Christ offers full forgiveness through his blood sacrifice. It's available to all. If anybody would repent and believe this good news that Jesus preached. But not only do we see first gospel lesson, the redemption of Yahweh, second gospel lesson, the remission of Yahweh, third gospel lesson, the real estate of Yahweh. I had to get another R in there. I mentioned it. We don't have the time to go back to Isaiah 61 and Luke chapter 4, but hopefully you were able to see that as Jesus quotes Isaiah from Luke chapter 4, he didn't speak of the day of the vengeance of Yahweh because that's in the future and then what he describes after that of this bountiful land is something that's in the future so that while these ancient land promises for Israel related to real land in Israel there is a future land for the believer Emmanuel's land, as Rutherford wrote. A land, as J. Scler writes, in short, the year of Jubilee looks backward to Eden, but also forward to heaven. This land that was spoken of in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 8, by faith Abraham, when he was called, obeyed by going out to a place which he was to receive for an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith he sojourned in the land of promise as in a foreign land dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, fellow heirs of the same promise. He was looking 
And notice this, this is here we see that that ancient promised land is a picture of a future land because he was looking for the city which has its foundations, whose architect and builder is God, namely a new heavens and new earth. This is why when Jesus comes in Matthew chapter 5, he says, blessed are the meek for they shall inherit what? The earth, a new earth. A renovated earth. Or in the words of 1 Peter chapter 1, as Peter writes, remember he starts out that book, he's writing to aliens, not aliens with antennas and beady eyes, but exiles. He says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who reside as exiles scattered throughout Pontius, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and then in verse 3 he says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to obtain an inheritance. What was the promised land of the Old Testament called? An inheritance. To obtain an inheritance that is incorruptible, undefiled, never fades away, kept in heaven for you who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed at the last time. So the good news of Jubilee, just as in that ancient Jubilee, when the ram's horn sounded, you may have been enslaved, you may have had no property, you're broke as a joke, But God says, come back to the land. Come to the land I gave you. The land that I promised to you, to your family. So in Jubilee today, God says, there's a land that awaits you. Emmanuel's land, a new heavens and new earth. Jesus said, believe in God, believe also in me. For if I go... Away I go and prepare a place for you. And I will come again and receive you unto myself. That where I am, there you may be also. In John 14. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. Jake was a 65-year-old bachelor lived on the fringes of a small town in rural Midwest. Jake was socially awkward. He was often mocked for it, mocked by his neighbors, mocked by everybody else in town. But Jake loved Jesus. Jake knew the hope of eternal life in Christ in a world to come. He knew his Bible, and often when he would see his pastor out in the town square, he would yell across to his pastor, gonna be fun farming on the new earth. There ain't no weeds in the new earth. Friends, this is the promise of Jubilee forever future land with God forever. Let's pray. Lord God Almighty, these ancient laws which seem so strange to us
Point us to gospel realities. Thank you, Lord. Thank you that we on this side of the cross can see what these pictures point to. In Jesus' name, amen.